to Genesis tonight as we continue towards the end here of this first book of Scripture, this beginning book, this foundational book. We're up to Genesis 46 at verse 31. You know the story of God calling Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, who's given the name also of Israel, having 12 sons. Brother sold Joseph into Egypt. God raised Joseph up in Egypt. And God, through Joseph, brought the brothers to repentance and now has actually brought the whole family down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. And Joseph's in charge in Egypt, and he, by God's grace, is used to preserve this holy family in a number of ways, but also in giving them bread to live. And so at the uh, Genesis 46, verse 30, Joseph and Jacob have just been reunited after 20-some years. Father Jacob and his son Joseph, he thought was dead. And he said, now let me die since I've seen your face because you are still alive. And then we read about the settling in of God's people in the land of Egypt. Genesis 46, verse 31, the word of our God. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation, that you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father his brothers and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished 
because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread. And we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them, therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day, that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. God's holy and infallible word. Let's ask for his blessing. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for recording our story, your story, the story of the church, of God saving a people for the glory of his name. We pray that you would speak to us, reminding us that you are the God who remains the same, true to his promises forever. We thank you, Lord, for the great leap forward in the coming of our Lord Jesus. But we pray you'd show us how this word still speaks to us today. We ask for your help to know you and to know our purpose upon this earth, to know your grace to us daily through Christ. Come, Lord, we pray, and meet us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. People of God, you've heard the phrase, in the world, but not of the world, used to describe the situation in which we as the church find ourselves. We're in the world, but not of the world. And the world, in that phrase, means, of course, not simply the cosmos or creation, but it means the, the hostile world, the alienated world, the, the world that doesn't know God. We are in this world, but we don't belong to it. That phrase probably comes from Christ's words in John 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Or Christ's words that elucidate that further in his prayer to the Father in John 17, a couple chapters later, when Jesus prays, I have given them your word, And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So the church is in the world, but not of the world. And yet sometimes we say too much of the world has gotten into the church. The church has become worldly. Sometimes it's alleged and and it's true, isn't it? I mean, there's always some degree of worldliness in us. And sometimes there's a whole lot of worldliness, but always we have to live lives of of daily repentance. And and where the church becomes worldly, she needs to be rebuked, right? We pray God would turn us. But it's important to remember tonight that, that being separate or holy, being not worldly, this is is not just a calling demanded of us, but before it's a calling, it's a gift. We are holy because God has made us holy. It's a, it's a reality. The church, by definition, is not of the world. We can use the word antithetical. The church is antithetical to the world. There's this, this strong contrast. Decades ago, R.B. Kuyper, in his excellent book, The Glorious Body of Christ, spoke of this antithesis between the church and the world. He wrote, the antithesis is also an actual fact. So long as the church has existed, the antithesis has been a reality. And so long as the church will exist in this wicked world, the antithesis will continue as a reality. The world will never be permitted to absorb the church. And the church, though always marred by worldliness, will never become identified with the world. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't individual people or even individual congregations that are not lost to the world, right? Jesus warned in those letters of Revelation 2 and 3 that if certain churches did not repent, he would come and remove their lampstand. They no longer have the honor of bearing the light of the Lord Jesus. But the church as such will never become one with the world. And why is that? It's because God has created the church. He has made her holy, a radically distinct people, a people set apart to him, and because God preserves the church to the very end. And that's what we see tonight, the Lord preserving his people. Let's look at how God, first of all, protects our identity, and how he secondly promotes our calling in this world, and thirdly, how he preserves our hope. Those three points. 
Well, first of all, God protects the identity of his holy people as he brings them here down to Egypt and settles them in the land of Goshen. He protects their identity. We're familiar with that language because we have government officials that warn us and we have advertisers that that warn us so we're well schooled in this idea that identity theft is a problem. But there's actually two kinds of identity theft and the second one is far greater than the worst. First, the, the first kind of identity theft is when somebody takes your identity to impersonate you, right? And so they, they get into your bank account or whatever it might be, and they, they rob you by pretending to be you. But the worst kind of identity theft is when somebody actually takes from you who you are or helps you become what you were not before, and that's what Satan wants to do to his church, God's church, rather. And, and this is the distinction that, that God reminds his people of, or the calling in Romans 12, when he says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed, do not be squeezed into the mold of this world, but let your mind be transformed. Remember who you are. It's the great temptation always, isn't it, to be pressed into the mold of the world. We, we face the peer pressure, those around us. We, we don't like to be different. We don't like to be thought of as weird. We don't like to, to be the oddball. We want to fit in. We want to fit in at work. We want to fit in our neighborhood. We want to fit in in this world. And it's a great temptation to compromise with the world. One of the greatest pressure, pressures to, to squeeze us into the mold or or one of the, the weapons Satan uses to do that is, is financial pressure, right? In the days of the early church, you know, there were, there were believers who, when they turned from being Jews to being Christians, from pagans to being Christians, then the community they used to be a part of would ostracize them and boycott their business. And we know it, it goes on still today throughout the world. That, that the Christian is, is through financial pressure, uh, Tempted to, to turn back and become part of the community they left. Satan uses the purse strings to threaten. God reminds us, however, that our identity in him is an identity of belonging to the Lord who cares for us. Because you know that as God brings his people down to Egypt, he shows them that that the, that the way of preservation in Egypt is not by compromising with the Egyptians to become part of Egypt, but their security, even financially, is found in belonging to the Lord their God. It really is astounding what takes place in the life of Jacob here, in the life of his family. A few chapters ago, they're running out of food, right? They're facing an impending death. And now they're situated in, in Egypt and well provided for. And you see this, this stark contrast in chapter 47 between verse 12 and verse 13. Verse 12, then Joseph provided for his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread. And then verse 13, now there was no bread in all the lands, for the famine was severe. In the midst of the famine, God preserves his people. The very existence of the church had been threatened. They faced starvation. What if the church had become extinct? No redeemer. But God supplies them with bread. And, and so this family of Jacob goes from being this, this wandering, homeless people. They don't own any land in the world 
to being settled in Egypt now with land. They're given the best of the land. The Egyptians, as they run out of food, they have to, they have to give up their money, then they have to give up their livestock, then they have to give up their lands. But the people of God are supplied in abundance. God takes care of his people. God takes care of his people. You don't have to sell your soul to have bread for your table. That's good news. People sell themselves for all kinds of things in this world, don't they? They sell their lives to try to secure their lives, but not the people of God. We're alive today because the Lord has kept us alive and he's provided for us. And to what end and for what purpose? Well, Psalm 105, we sang it, but if you read the psalm, it it celebrates all the ways God provided for his people. He even, it says, he sent Joseph ahead of them into Egypt and so forth. But the psalm ends, Psalm 105 says, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. The Lord preserved his people so that they might live as his people. And we can ask ourselves tonight if, if God's great material care for us has has led us to devote ourselves all the more to the Lord? Has it produced a a gratitude that leads to godliness, right? I mean, this is what should have happened in the life of of the family of Jacob. And as the Israelites are reading these words, hearing these words read to them in the the wilderness as Moses is leading them, they, they should be hearing this, that we don't have to sell ourselves for food, but our God can provide. Has, has God's provisions for your life, the doctor he gives you, the job he gives you, the retirement savings he gives you, is it, does it lead you to, to devote yourself to the Lord, to consecrate yourself all the more to God and to glory in the identity he's given you? And all the more we could ask that about the spiritual bread God gives us as we ate and drank of our Lord Jesus this morning. Does it lead us to gratitude leading to godliness. But God preserves this this identity of his people here, not only by by supplying bread, but by settling his people in a very specific place in Egypt. He settles them in Goshen. Maybe we should back up and ask, why did God bring his people from the land of Canaan down to the land of Egypt? And, And the answer seems to be because God's people were facing the temptation to compromise with the Canaanites. Remember, one of uh, Jacob's sons, Judah, earlier we had read, he, he went away. He left the covenant family, went to live among the Canaanites, married a Canaanite woman, taught his sons to marry Canaanite women, and, and he had a Canaanite friend, and he ended up seeking a prostitute and all this. And, and so the culture of Canaan, the world, was getting into Judah, threatening to get into the whole family of Jacob. And God seems to remove them from Canaan, to isolate them and to insulate them, or he'll keep them in this incubator, as it were, in Egypt until they bring them back to Canaan. And what does he he do when he brings them back? He says, well, now their sins are at full measure. Wipe them out. Cleanse the land. Destroy their gods. Forget the ways they live. Don't do what they did. So he brings them down to Egypt, it seems, to keep them safe. But we would have to ask, is Egypt any safer than Canaan? It's also a pagan people. And what will happen when they arrive in Egypt? Will they just intermarry with the Egyptian women and and the church and the world blend together now? Make compromises and follow the gods of Egypt? Well, the preserver of the church, Joseph, who is 
in some ways a, a foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus here. He, he's aware of the danger. And so what does Joseph do? He, he scripts this whole thing with his brothers. He coaches them. I'm going to go tell Pharaoh, you're herdsmen, you're, you're shepherds. And when you come, you say we're shepherds because the Egyptians despise shepherds. And then you'll get put in the land of Goshen, which is a land separate. Probably the land to the northeast, the Canaan side of Egypt, which was relatively unpopulated and relatively separate and isolated from the rest of Egypt. That they might avoid mingling with the Egyptians, avoid being drawn into that alien way of life, or the pagan culture, avoid intermarriage, and in the meantime, preserve their heritage, their language, the revelation God gave them, the customs, the history. Well, the meeting goes splendidly. Brings in his brothers before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh gives them the best of the land. He even says, if you have some, some good herdsmen, put them in charge of my flocks. The Lord gives the very best to his church here and sets his people apart. Now, we, we fast forward to New Testament days, and we know that things have changed, right? Because we're not conspiring tonight to, to purchase an island where we can set up our isolated community. And, and nor are we looking for a monastery with tall walls that we can all go hide behind. We know that we are in the world, right? The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He goes on to say, I told you not to associate with the sexually immoral who call themselves Christians, try to pretend in the church. But if you had to separate from all the wicked of the world, you'd have to go out of the world. But that's not God's plan for you. Jesus prayed, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So God's way of preserving our identity this evening is not through geographical separation, first of all. The danger is still always with us, the danger of worldliness, the world creeping in, the worldly mindset, the worldly value system, the worldly habits and customs creeps in upon us. But who protects our identity? Well, it's not lifelock. It's the Lord by his word and spirit. Who is it that brings conviction? When we watch something or read something or listen to something we should not have, and then we think, I never want to do that again. Who is it that intrudes in our thoughts when we've thought a thought that was wicked or ugly? Convicts us, no, say no to that, turn away from that. Who is it that speaks to us in the preaching of the word? Uncovering our secret sins. It's not a, a preacher, a man who knows every thought in, a heart, in our hearts or minds. It's, it's the Lord's Spirit. Who is it that has kept us from falling time and again? We can look back over our lives and think, boy, if, if that hadn't happened, boy, I might have gone off the rails. Or if, or if that had happened, that opportunity had been there. Maybe you look back to high school or college or those early years, and thought, boy, if that person I wanted to date had dated me, boy, I don't know what would have happened. 
If I had taken that job that I wanted so bad, if it was offered to me, I, I might have become quite worldly. But it's the Lord. It's God who keeps us. It's God who trains us through trials, through struggles, through the arrangement of our lives, and above all, through his word. It's God who is protecting our identity. It's also through the fellowship of the Christian church, isn't it? It's this, it's Sundays, it's the Lord's Day, in which God sets upon us again the reality of our identity as God's people. And what would you pay for membership in his church? There's no fee to belong to the church, but there are membership fees for gyms and all kinds of things. But, but if you could put a value on it, membership in the church of Jesus Christ, that I would have the right to assemble with the saints, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, what, what kind of price tag would you put on that? Considering the benefit that it is these gatherings that have kept my soul alive, that they have preserved my identity We're thankful for one another, for the encouragement we bring to each other, for reminders. Even hearing the singing reminds us, I belong to this redeemed people. Preaching of the word works in us. The Lord's Supper reminds us of our unique identity, that Jesus has prayed for us. The Spirit convicts us. The Father governs us that we might be the Lord's. But then notice, secondly, tonight, that God promotes our calling. God promotes our calling. This identity is so that we might be called to bless the world. Now you notice in verse 27, we read that, So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen. They had possessions and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And the question that we should ask is, what was all of that for? Why were they so blessed? Was it simply so that this family of Jacob could have nice, happy, prosperous, cozy lives? And the answer is no. We sang already in Psalm 67 tonight, Lord, let your face shine upon us, bless us, so that your way may be known upon the earth. The provisions were not for Israel's ultimate isolation, but to become a blessing to the world. And so then it's, it's striking, isn't it, that when Joseph sets his father Jacob before Pharaoh, verse 7, 47, verse 7, then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, that's a bit different than Joseph's brothers. They come in before Pharaoh, and they seem to take the subservient posture that they had taken when they didn't know Joseph was their brother. Remember, they came and they bowed down. And here they're brought in before Pharaoh, and they don't speak first. They let Pharaoh speak. And we'd expect that as Father Jacob comes before Pharaoh, that he too would would let Pharaoh speak to him. But instead we read that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh interviews him, and then at the end in verse 10, so Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. Now it's rather astounding. Hebrews 7, recording that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, says, and without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. The lesser is blessed by the greater. When you come before a great king, you don't presume to speak and to bless him as if he needs you. You you come to seek his favor. You bow down. 
But as Jacob comes before Pharaoh, as this shaggy old shepherd comes before the clean-shaven, well-dressed ruler of the world's superpower of Egypt, who takes the initiative? Who speaks? Jacob stands tall and blesses Pharaoh. The Egyptians regarded Pharaoh as a living God. And Jacob presumptuously, audaciously, blesses Pharaoh. And I think Jacob understood, and certainly the Lord is highlighting to us here, that as much as it may seem that Jacob and his family need Pharaoh and need Egypt, it's not really the case. It's that Pharaoh and Egypt need the family of Jacob. Jacob is the Lord's chosen. It's through his family that the blessing comes. God called Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's through this chosen family that God will bring blessing to the nations of the world. It's already beginning to be seen. It, of course, comes to the fullness when, when Jesus appears, right? And the gospel is sent out at Pentecost to the nations. But already here we get the glimpse, don't we? Because as, as Pharaoh blesses Jacob's family by giving them food and land, they re- Jason, Je- Pharaoh and Egypt receive the blessing of, of Jacob, of the Lord through Jacob. And already through this great-grandson of Abraham, Joseph, Egypt is blessed and being saved. Right? Isn't it amazing? Joseph takes everything from the Egyptians. Right? Every year they've got to give some more stuff up so they can get bread. And you wonder, are these people going to be angry at Joseph? And when you get to it all, to the end of it all, now they've sold even their lands and themselves. What do they say? Verse 25, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord. Joseph is a savior of the world. In other lands, parents may well have seen their children starving to death bloated stomachs and groans and cries. But in Egypt, there's life because of Joseph. And how did Joseph, who, remember, he he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams about the coming famine, first of all, the years of, of abundance and then the coming famine. And how did Joseph end up in charge of Egypt? Well, because the Lord moved Pharaoh to recognize that the Son of God must rule. Pharaoh did not reject Joseph's interpretation of his dreams. Nor did Pharaoh say, well, thanks for the information. A famine is coming. Okay, goodbye, back to prison for you, and I'll take care of this. Now, remember what Pharaoh said. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people. God did something in Pharaoh to cause him to recognize that there is no deliverance for Egypt unless this offspring of Abraham rules. 
And so, in a sense, Pharaoh has bowed down to Joseph. Remember later on when a, when a Pharaoh arises who does not know Joseph, and he puts God's people in bondage in Egypt, when he curses God's people, he is not blessed. But what happens? The angel of death comes and destroys Egypt. God has given his people a calling in the world. And that calling comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is the true seed of Abraham. And it's in Christ that the blessing for the world comes, not simply physical food, but spiritual food, the bread of life, eternal life, salvation. It's in Jesus Christ that there is blessing. Jesus Christ knew his identity, didn't he? There's, there's no one who's ever walked the face of the earth who wasn't more taken up with his identity, right? Christ always had his identity in mind and therefore had in mind his calling and his purpose. But you know, we as the church of Jesus Christ now, as those united to Jesus Christ, have a task. Our identity is protected by God so that we might be a blessing to the world, that we might proclaim the one in whom is the blessing. That's our calling our, our, our identity and, and God preserving our lives is not just so we can have nice, cozy lives. That's the, the great temptation in America, isn't it? Nice, prosperous, easy, comfortable lives. This is why it's helpful for us, isn't it, to, to read the missionary reports from other lands and to read about what brothers and sisters are suffering and to say to ourselves, wow, everything is taken from them. They're driven from their homes. They're, they're beaten. They're imprisoned. And still they cling to Christ. To remind us that Christianity is not about the American dream. But our identity is protected for the sake of the world. Not just for the sake of our souls. Yes, that too. But our identity is protected for the sake of our calling in the world. We are the ambassadors of Christ's kingdom. We, we are the citizens of heaven living as a heavenly colony upon earth, supposed to direct the eyes of others to another realm, another kingdom, another king, that they might have life. To live our lives in such a way that people notice something is different about us, that they see we have something good. We have joy and peace in the Lord. We, we believe we have a hope and a future. Have you noticed your unique position in this world? Never, I was going to say, never have we had a people so confused about their identity as the people in our culture. But we know our identity, and we know the only identity that will last is to belong to the Lord. And so we need not cower in fear, but following the steps of Father Jacob here, we may stand straight up and tell the world, not cowering before the world and saying, I need you so badly, and I'm, I'm willing to compromise my identity, and I'll do what you, my boss, whatever you say, I'll, I'll, I'll give up all my ethics, whatever it takes to keep a job, I need you. No. To stand up with Father Jacob and say, let me tell you about the one in whom is the blessing, whom you need. You need me to tell you where bread is found.
We are not desperately in need of the favor of the world's power brokers. We are the children of God. Belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We bear his name and we are called to speak it. And what Pharaoh said of Joseph, the world ought to say of us, who is so wise and discerning as you? Not because we are any of that in ourselves, but because we're united to Christ, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Why does God keep blessing me? The answer is that you might be a blessing to the world. That you might bear that name of Jesus. That you might tell others of this Lord Christ. That you might point a desperate world to the only place where there is life. That you might, in the way you live and and the ethics you keep at work and in the world and your refusal to compromise, that you might tell the world that you belong to a different kingdom, one that will last forever. I'm a citizen of heaven. You might point a dying world to the only one who can give life, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But in order for us to perform this calling, then finally we need to have that hope. And that's the third thing God does here. He preserves our hope, finally. When Jacob is interviewed by Pharaoh, Pharaoh asks him, how old are you? Rather simple question. How old are you? Rather simple answer could be given. I'm 130 years old. But that's not what Father Jacob says. He says in verse 9, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. Jacob describes his life as a sojourning, as a pilgrimage. He says it's been a hard one. And if we go back over Jacob's life, we can see it has been a hard one. Some of it was quite self-inflicted, right? Deceiving Jacob, his brother trying to murder him, fighting it out with father-in-law Laban, and losing Rachel, thinking Joseph got killed, and all that. But, but you know, now, now Jacob has come to, to know that Joseph is the second in command in Egypt. His son is on the top of the world. And now Father Jacob has a place in Egypt. He has plenty of food. It was a hard sojourn. It was a difficult pilgrimage. But now maybe Father Jacob would change his tune and say, you know, I'm not going to be a pilgrim anymore. I'm going to put down roots. I'm going to plant myself here. But it's not what he does, is it? In fact, you come to the end of the story. And what happens? Verse 27, as they dwell in the land and have great possessions and they multiply exceedingly in this place in Egypt, when Jacob comes to die, what does he do? He says to Joseph, calls him to him, swear to me that you won't bury me in Egypt. Swear to me that you won't bury me in Egypt, but that you'll carry my bones up to Canaan. And plant me there. Isn't that amazing? Jacob, though his son, has become the prime minister of this world superpower of Egypt. 
Jacob says, my hope is not that we might become prosperous in Egypt and take over this place and mine will be a dynasty of Egyptian kings. But his eye is on the promised land. The land God promised to his father Abraham and to his father Isaac and to him. And that land that was only a symbol of the land to come. Hebrews 11 says, These patriarchs, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In the face of all this blessing and prosperity, God preserves in Jacob the pilgrim's heart. My eyes are on the goal. I'm looking for the land God has promised me. And this is what God's doing for us. Every Lord's Day is just another stepping stone, isn't it? To the great hope before us. And every sermon is to lift up our hearts to Jesus. Every taste of the bread and wine is to be a taste of the kingdom that's coming. And we are to be pressed forward. That hope must remain alive in us. Because if it doesn't, we will compromise with the world. And if we compromise with the world, we have lost our identity. And therefore, we have forfeited our calling. The landscape of America is dotted with churches that are useless to the world. Places where the truth used to be preached and a holy people used to worship, looking in hope for the coming of the Lord Jesus, and have now become little more than social organizations that talk about social help for people in need, but denying all the while the real need of humanity. Churches that have become so much like the world that the world doesn't bother to come to the church because there's nothing different there. We as God's people are to look different from the world. Our worship is to be different. Our lives are to be different. The way we speak is to be different. The style of our life is to be different because we belong to the Lord. We have a hope. We have a pilgrimage here below in which we are to call people to the Lord Jesus. And then we enter into that eternal rest. Amazingly, in the Old Testament, Jacob seems to have understood that. Wouldn't it be sad if in the New Testament the Redeemer having come, if we forget who we are? Are you different from the world tonight? Does the world recognize there's something odd about you? Can they hear your accent and the way you speak, that you come from a different land? Can they catch it in the way you walk, that you're headed to a different place? We are the people of the Lord. And we are called to seek that homeland and to tell others about it. May God grant us the grace to do that. Amen.
Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your amazing work in the life of Jacob and his family. How amazing, oh God, that in the midst of a hostile, ungodly world that you provided for your church in abundant ways, not just physically, but to maintain in the heart the pilgrimage. And Father, we confess we need your help every bit as much. We live in a godless land, but Father, we are thankful to be your people, to be marked as yours. We pray that the light would shine brightly through us. We pray that that we would not compromise with the world, but that we'd be glad to be different, as Christ is different. As Christ does not pray that you would take us out of the world, but that you would keep us and preserve us in this world. So, Father, we join that prayer tonight. And we pray that you would guard our souls, that you'd renew our hope, and that you would preserve us day by day. Make us glad to be your people and to tell the world where the blessing is found in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.